So I'm just checking, what's the word? Invite. And somebody ought to be in your head right now. We're going to fill up this place next Sunday because you invited people. One of my favorite phrases here, whenever I welcome somebody who hadn't been here for a while, or, or maybe it's a guest who hadn't uh, been here ever, I will say to them, welcome home. Because this place feels like home. And today we're going to talk about the home that Jesus went to uh, on the week of Passion Week before he went to his heavenly home, and that's Jerusalem. Now, coming home is a special thing. I think I've told you before that I love to drive. I do it poorly. You will rededicate your life to Jesus if you ride with me. But I love to drive. And I love to, to maybe even just sit in silence. I don't have to have the radio on. I just love to drive. And I make up all kinds of stories about stuff that's going on around me. But there's one place when I would go back to New Orleans, and then one place I've discovered here in Atlanta that when you get to that place, you feel like you're home. In New Orleans, there is a a place in the high-rise bridge. That's the bridge that comes over I-10 as you're coming into New Orleans. It has to be high because it's the intercoastal waterway to let big ships pass under it. But because New Orleans is below sea level, when you hit the top of that bridge, you can see everything. The skyline on the, the, the right is what you see when you uh, uh, do it in the daytime, but at night it's just brilliant. You see the lights of the city, and it's just something like if you've been on a trip and you're on, you're on your way back, when you crest the top of the high rise, you know your home. Well, strange things happened. The longer I've been here, the more this is home and New Orleans isn't. And on the way back from uh, coming in on I-20 West, I discovered a spot just like that right near Douglasville. Now, with the appropriate traffic pictured, you come over a hill right by Six Flags, and all of a sudden the city is spread out in front of you, and you know you're coming home. Well, in a lot of ways, home for Jesus was Jerusalem. He wasn't born there. He was born in Bethlehem. He wasn't raised there. He was raised in Nazareth. But his family brought him there often. They brought him there when he was a baby to dedicate him. They brought him there when he was a teenager and he taught in the temple. He probably went there every single year for the festival of Passover in the spring. And he also was very well acquainted with the Scriptures where God said, you build me a place in Jerusalem and I will dwell there. Now, we know God doesn't live in any particular place, but he felt like that was home. He went there over and over again, and he went there as a visitor, but on this last week of his life, this Palm Sunday, we've been talking in our series about the destinations that Jesus went to, the, the places that he visited. We talked about Bethany, and we talked about the temple and Caiaphas' house, and, and, and when he would come into Jerusalem, it was special. Now, depending on the perspective, this is probably his spot near Douglasville. This is probably his spot 
at the top of the high rise. This is the view from the top of the Mount of Olives in either Bethany or Bethpage, the two twin cities, twin villages that were there at the top of the Mount of Olives. Mount of Olives is more of a a ridge than a mountain. It's two miles long and runs on the eastern side of Jerusalem. You go down the side of the Mount of Olives, that's the Kidron Valley, and then the, the city of Jerusalem itself. He would have come into Jerusalem most likely from the east, and this is the view that he had. That's the wall of the city of Jerusalem. Just on the, the, to the right of the trees on the left of the path, you see just the edge of the eastern gate. Jesus was coming home. It was a place for him that was sentimental. It was a, a thing we call the triumphal entry or, or Palm Sunday. It's a, it was a time when he came into the city no longer as a visitor, No longer as a child being brought to be dedicated. No longer as an adolescent to ask questions in the temple. No longer to come to the temple for Passover or for teaching. Now he was coming into Jerusalem this one last time as a king. Now the kind of king that he was to be is kind of what the rest of this is about. It's sort of what the rest of the message is about, is that our perspective of who he is, of of what kind of king that he was, well, that's what we pretty much need to settle. But coming home for Jesus was so emotional that when he got to this spot, he wept. When he got to that place, he wept. Now, John eleven thirty five 35 says that Jesus wept. Now, you will memorize that as a child, shortest verse in the Bible, the one we could all handle in Bible drill. But that's a different time than this. In this time, he looked at the city of Jerusalem, and when he drew near, he wept over it. And he said, would that you, even you, had known on this day Let this be the day that you could have had peace. But the peace you have in mind is a a different kind of peace than I have in mind. Because these are hidden from your eyes. The days will come when your enemies will set up a barricade around you. They will tear every stone in the city apart. If you go to Jerusalem today, you'll see that this was fulfilled in 70 AD when the Romans ransacked the city, and because they set it on fire and the gold from the images in the temple melted into the stones, they took every stone apart to get at that gold, and they just threw the the temple stones over the the edge of the city wall, and they are today rubble along the side that you, you travel when you go to the temple mount. He said, they will tear you to the ground, you and your children, and they will not leave one stone upon another because you didn't understand. You didn't know that this was the day. This was the day when peace came to Jerusalem. So I want to wrap my mind around the Palm Sunday story, the triumphal entry. And I want to remind you that all four of the writers in the New Testament that we know so well, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they they all told this story from a little different perspective. If you read them, you get a little bit of a different timeline. Uh, You you could even read John's version and, and wonder if it was Palm Monday and not Palm Sunday. 
But, but what matters is that they were telling the story as it was meaningful to them. Luke was a Gentile physician. And he told the perspective from people. He saw people. He empathized with people. And so in Luke's version of the story, you get a whole lot of what people were thinking or doing. John didn't care what happened. He wants to tell why it happened. So he leaves out some details. He skips from place to place. Mark is the shortest one. He's the storyteller. He's, he's the one that, that, that sort of uh, just handles the main parts of the story, and you see the rise and fall of the plot line. Matthew is the Jewish writer who was very, very concerned that we understand that Jesus was a king, that Jesus was the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecy, that Jesus was the one that they promised would come, that Jesus was the Messiah, that Matthew's version makes us understand that. He's, he really wants to tell. And Matthew's version, the story doesn't really start in Jerusalem. It starts in a little village that's about 14 miles away as the crow flies, 17 miles away up a very treacherous winding mountain path. And that place is Jericho. Now, the tree in the picture is 2,000 years old, and it's a sycamore tree. It's what everybody goes to Jericho to see because they assume that in the story that Luke told of a guy named Zacchaeus, if you ever went to Bible school, Zacchaeus was a, and a wee little man was. So now that tune is in the head for the rest of the day. You're welcome. <laughs> So Zacchaeus was a a, a tax collector in Jericho, and and he had dinner with him in Jericho on probably Thursday or Friday before he started making his way to Jerusalem. He wasn't allowed to travel on Friday, which was the the Passover, so so after 6 o'clock on Friday night until 6 o'clock on Saturday, he he couldn't travel. That was the Passover, so so he was in Jericho either on Thursday and left on Friday, or he stayed the Passover. We don't know, so the timeline is, is a little ambiguous. But what we do know is that after he had dinner with Zacchaeus on his way out of town, he had an encounter with some people who were beside the road just begging. Mark's version names one of them, Bartimaeus, says there's one there instead of two. Luke's version says there's a couple of them. And here's the story. As they went out of Jericho, a great crowd followed him. Well, that makes sense, right? He, he'd been doing miracles in Galilee, and, and, and he's far away from the Roman uh, 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 army, the Roman governance who would try to tell him, don't, don't do anything that disrupts the peace. He was far away from the Jewish leaders, and so he, there, there was this crowd following him, and certainly they followed him through Jericho, and he was obviously on his way to Passover, and we're on our way to Passover, so we'll just follow him and see what happens. It's kind of like it's in NASCAR. You go, something's going to wreck sooner or later. And so he's on his way, and this crowd is following him. And there was these two blind men sitting beside the road, and they were begging. I mean, it's the same principle as the, the guy at the end of the interstate ramp with the sign, why do you go there? That's where the people are. And so he was beside the road as it led out of Jericho towards Jerusalem. These guys were on their blanket. They were, they were begging. They were completely dependent on the benevolence of people who would pass by and throw them a few coins. So they heard that the healer was here. 
that the one who did miracles was nearby. And so they started shouting, come, come, come over here, help us. And, and they shouted louder and louder, and it was, it was really embarrassing. I mean, it wasn't the, the, the town fathers of Jericho certainly didn't want that to be what the, 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 the people saw. And so they tried to tell them to be quiet. The crowd rebuked them, saying, telling them to be silent. But they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And stopping, Jesus called to them and said, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Lord, let our eyes be open. And Jesus, in pity, touched their eyes, and immediately they recovered their sights, and they joined him in the parade. But I don't want to run past that because what, what I'd like to do this morning is kind of tie three statements from three separate incidents together to, to make us think about the, the whole Palm Sunday thing. And the, and the first one is, is there. I don't know if you just love a taste of the ironic, but it hit me that these blind guys asked Jesus for help, and his response is, well, what do you want? Um, sight? How does that work? He had the power to do that. They knew that he had the power to do that. Everything else they had tried, and, and, and back then, uh, uh, fortunately not today, but, but back then any kind of physical uh, infirmity, was, was any kind of physical weakness was considered to be a, a, a sign that you had sinned or that your parents had sinned or that something's gone wrong. And so these blind guys are shouting at him. The crowd is trying to, to shut him up. One writer in this text, he said, really what we shouldn't try to figure out is why they were shouting, but why we don't. <laughs> not, not why they were shouting for Jesus to come over to them, but why we don't. So then he says, okay, guys, what is it that you want? And that question has always sort of rested on me because when, when I pray, I ask Jesus for stuff, right? I, I ask if this can happen or that can happen or if you can make this stop hurting or make this start. Can I have this? Can I have that? Can, would, you, would you make my kids behave? Would you, would you? And sometimes I wonder if... Jesus looks at me and says, Alan, what do you really want here? Do you, do, you, do you understand the ramifications of what happens if I answer your prayer in the way you want me to? Do you, do you, do you understand? And these, these, these two guys, maybe he was asking him, do you, do you understand that you will not be able to, to spread your blanket out here every day? That, that you're going to have to, to plug in somewhere. You're going to have to, to work somewhere. You're going to have to be responsible for your families again. You're, you're going to have to, to take from you what in their day was all you could do if you couldn't do for yourself was to ask others to help. Well, now, fortunately, that's not the case. We, we have lots of places where people who have uh, disabilities that we would call them are not disabilities at all, but, but that wasn't the day back then. 
And the day then was all you could do was beg. And so he says, are you ready to stop begging? Are you ready to take responsibility for what happens if this actually comes to pass? If you actually do get into the college of your choice, if you actually do get that job promotion, if you actually do get that, if you actually, this happens, are are you ready for all that happens because of that? It's a great question on Palm Sunday. We're going to talk in a minute about how, how we tend to think of the wrong kind of kingdom when we think about Jesus' kingdom. And, and he was looking at people going, what do you want? What do you really want from me? And are you ready for what happens if it comes? So Jesus goes on. He gets to that place where he weeps and he stops. John says he stopped overnight if you read Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you kind of think that he went on to Jerusalem and then back to uh, that house at, uh, that Mary, Martha, and Lazarus lived in that we talked about a couple of weeks ago in Bethany. But either way, he was headed from Jericho to Jerusalem, 17 miles of windy mountain path ascending 3,000 vertical feet from Jericho, which is 900 feet below sea level, to Jerusalem, which is in the mountains. And they get to the city, and when he gets around the corner in that path, he is looking at the eastern gate of the city. Now, the old city of Jerusalem, I told you, is only a square mile. The the wall goes all the way around it. There are eight gates in the city And the easternmost gate, the one that is closest to the Mount of Olives, that path he would have come down, is that one, the eastern gate, the beautiful gate. You'll notice that it's full of concrete because five or six hundred years ago, Suleiman figured that he could keep Jesus from returning through the eastern gate as is prophesied, and so he just plugged it up with concrete. Let me know how that works out. The God that I'm talking about, the God that I know, the Jesus that's in my heart, the Jesus that will mess you up, that will change your life. He is not stopped by a concrete gate. He's not stopped by a hard heart. He is the King. And so they came down, and and the Scripture tells us the story of what happened on the path. Now, he's at the top of the Mount of Olives, city of Bethany. He says, I've got to make some preparations for the journey down into Jerusalem. And because there was a prophecy that Matthew is going to quote from Zechariah, he needed a donkey. He needed the colt of a donkey. And so he sent a couple of disciples. When they drew near to Jerusalem, came to Bethpage, that's, that's the right beside Bethany, to the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples saying, go into the village ahead of you and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Matthew's the only one that mentions two animals. One, a, a donkey, and the second, her colt, her foal, one that had never been written, a juvenile donkey. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, Zechariah, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, on the foal of a beast of burden. So, so here's the deal. They're out of Jericho, wind their way up to the Jerusalem. They're at the top of the Mount of Olives. They're looking down at that path towards the eastern gate. 
and they're going to they're, they're gonna head into Jerusalem. This crowd that has been following him is still following him. The FOMO crowd in Jerusalem is here in the buzz, and so a bunch of them are coming out to meet him. The crowd's with him. The crowd's coming. Don't want to miss anything. What's going on? It's like at a, at a ball, game, ball game when somebody yells, fight. We've all got to run over there and see what's going on. And so the crowd is coming out. The crowd is coming in. Somebody estimated there were two and a half million people in that square mile of Jerusalem during Passover in spring of 30 AD. Wow. And so, yeah, something to do. Where's the crowd? Where's the party? I don't want to miss anything. And so there's this massive throng of humanity. And Jesus stops and he says, we need to do this right. And because Zechariah had prophesied that the king, the real king, the Messiah, your king is coming to you, humble, mounted on a donkey, on a colt, on a foal, the beast of burden. So it's great. He's, he's going down the path, but I don't want to miss maybe the provocation for us. In the, in the first story, what is it you want Jesus to do for you? In the second story, I hope you see this, that whoever it was that owned the donkey... We don't know if there was a previous arrangement set up. We don't know if, if there was supernatural prophecy going on. We don't know if, if Jesus just knew him, so of course they would give him whatever he needed. But look at the way it's phrased. If anyone says anything to you, you say the Lord needs them so he will send them at once. That makes me think. When Jesus says, Alan, you have this skill. You have these financial resources. You have this talent. You have this relationship. You have this, uh, this spiritual gift. You have this, and the Lord needs it. Do you give it at once? Do you go, well, okay, let me see what the calendar looks like. Let me check with the wife. Let me, let me, let me. And it's almost like when, when this person heard the Lord needs it, that's all he needed to hear. And at once he said, okay, take them. Here's the car keys, the donkey keys. Take them, go. The, the juvenile donkey's never been ridden. Uh, he, he was just born. I, I'm trying to make sure that he's taken care of, that he's not worked too hard so that he doesn't have any physical problems as he grows up. Take them here, go, whatever you, the Lord needs. What do you want from him? What does the Lord need from you? What, take a little mental inventory of the things that you're good at, the people you know, the resources you can marshal, the, the, the dream that he's given you, the vision for what might happen at a church like this or, or, or some other church or in your neighborhood or at your workplace at your school. What does the Lord need from you? So the procession kept on going down the path, on the donkey. I love this painting. It's a Van Eck painting from 150 years ago or more. And, and you get the picture. A donkey is not a big animal. 
We, we kind of have this picture that Jesus came into Jerusalem on a stately steed and high above the crowds, Hosanna, palm branches, yay, Jesus, and, and that he's way above everybody else. Well, if he was on a juvenile donkey, his feet were probably near touching the ground. And a juvenile donkey that had never been ridden, I think the reason Matthew gives us the little detail that his, his mom was with him it's because they, they knew that that, that that colt would be skittish with a, a passenger for the first time ever. And so he is headed into the city, the crowd's following him, the crowd's coming out, and the Scripture says it this way in Matthew. This way in Matthew. This way in Matthew. <laughs> in the early service, Robert I got about here, and the lyrics to Because He Lives popped up. <laughs> what just happened? The disciples went. They did what he directed them to do. They brought the donkey, the colt, put on their cloaks, sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks along the road. Others cut the branches from the tree, spread them out over the road. John tells us they were palm branches. No other uh, version does that. And the crowds that went before him and followed him were shouting. So the crowds that went before him and followed him, these two crowds that are coming together, they were shouting, Hosanna, which means God come. To the son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? And the crowd said, this is the prophet, Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. That's the main question. That, that's the statement we need to focus on. Who is he? Who is he? And, and, and I started off saying that the secret sauce of Palm Sunday is to know what it was that they expected. And that our perception of who Jesus is, is everything. Now, if you hadn't been to church in a while or never, if you're watching online and you're just trying to figure all this out, be, be patient. Because the impression that we have of Jesus and who he is, a lot of times we Christians mess that up in the eyes of people who really don't know the stories. Because we kind of expect Jesus to be a cosmic therapist. We kind of think he's going to hear our prayers, he's going to solve our problems, he's going to help us with our job, he's going to make my boss quit being mean, and he's going to make the dishes clean themselves. And he's, he's going to do all these things because we are praying to him and he's our guy. I, I'm a Christian. Life is, is better I don't have the problems that, that non-Christians have. I, I don't face the same stress that people who don't follow Jesus face. Absolute nonsense. Who is he? We Romans expected that he was this Jewish rabble-rouser rabble rouser who's just going to show us a good time. He's going to entertain us for a little while. The people that were following him, what miracle is he going to do next? Who's he going to feed next? Who's he going to heal next? Who's he going to raise from the dead next? Cosmic therapist. 
The people coming out from the city, they, they probably didn't know the stories. They hadn't been following. They were in town for Passover. They, they weren't connected. What's, what's he going to do? Who is it? What, what's this buzz about? Is, is this a, a Roman leader? Why are all these people following? Is, is he military? Has he been appointed by the Romans? What's the deal with him? Who is he? It's a great question for us. Who is he? Is he our cosmic therapist who's going to solve all our problems? Is he a good moral teacher who's going to give us advice about everything from relationships to finances to the lyrics of a new song? Is he a feel-good kind of guy? Or he is, is he the King of kings and the Lord of lords who will come into your life and mess you up? That's who he is. And it's probably better for us to reverse the order of these questions. To, to not look at them through the Jericho and then Bethany and then Jerusalem, but, but to start with this one and work our way backwards. Because at the very center of every dilemma of every person who's ever wondered about the, the way that supernatural forces work in our universe is the question, who is Jesus? Who is he? Is he the one that we believe was prophesied in the Old Testament and was brought to us in the New Testament who taught and lived and died and was resurrected, defeating death once and for all, bringing order to the cosmos in that there is eternal life. Life doesn't end. This life isn't all there is. Do we embrace that Jesus or do we embrace the one we pray to so that he can fix some earthly problem? Who is he? Now it makes sense to back up and say, what does he need from me? What does he need from you? And now it makes sense to back up. What is it that you truly want from him? I can't tell you how to answer those questions. I can only tell you that as I studied this week, it made so much sense to me that those are the questions that we need to be asking. We need to ask every day, who is he? What's he about? What's his real story? What's his real mission? What does that mean for me? What is it that he needs from me? Lord, I don't have anything. I, I can't sing. I don't talk very well. I, 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 who is he? What does he want from me? What do I want from him? So Jesus comes into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, and everything about the next five days would be completely opposite of what people expected. Everything they thought he was going to be, he wasn't. Everything they thought he was going to do, he didn't. Everything that they thought he was going to oppose, he submitted to because that was God's plan. And even when Friday night came, Thursday night came, Friday morning early actually, somewhere around midnight, he said, Lord, if it be your will, let this cup pass for me. But nonetheless, not my will, not my human will, not what I know, what, not what I can fathom as a human, but your will be done. And that becomes my model, right? 
That becomes my, 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 my unpacking. Who is this? What does he want from me? What do I want from him? It, it lets me kind of unpack it in reverse order that first I've got to settle. Who is he in my life? Is he a king that I want to mold into my image or he is my king that I submit to to whatever image he wants to make me? The latter is dangerous. I used to say one of the most dangerous prayers you could ever pray is, Lord, make me a better Christian. What if he does? What if he eliminates anything in your life that doesn't make you a good Christian and makes you do stuff that the, that's not so popular because you pray, Lord, make me a better Christian? To be a disciple is a, is a mess you up kind of proposition. And as Jesus came into Jerusalem on that Palm Sunday, looking at the eastern gate, through the eastern gate, headed for the temple. The crowds of people expected one thing. And Jesus and the Scripture and the Heavenly Father knew that it was something else. Would you pray for me, with me? With your head bowed and just kind of getting in your own space, let me ask you something. What kind of Jesus do you expect? And what kind of Jesus is it that's real to you? If you have never begun a relationship with Jesus, if you've never said, Lord, I, I acknowledge that I have sin in my life and and I acknowledge that you are the kind of king that can forgive sin. That's what you really came to do. You died on the cross. That provided forgiveness for my sin. I want to I submit to you as my king. If you've never done that ever, I'd love to have a conversation with you today. Our other pastors would. This coming, uh, right after this service, we have a thing called the Explorer class where we talk to people about their interest in being part of this church or, or becoming a Christian, and we take our time and hear each other's stories. We share lunch together. If you're interested in that, then just find somebody in a green shirt and say, point me to the room. I'm ready for lunch, and we'll figure out how to feed you. If something in you says... I've been chasing the wrong kind of king. And I want to just let him unpack whatever it is that he wants to do in my life. Whether you're 18 or 98, he will do exactly that. And open your eyes to whole new things. Because you're submitting to the God of the universe, the King of Kings. And it'll help change the algorithm of what do you want from me to whatever it is you want from me? If you just need somebody to pray with you about that change of direction, find somebody in the lobby in the green shirt. Or maybe as we sing in just a minute, you just come pray here at the altar. Whatever it is that God is leading you to do. And then the rest of the week, we've got Maundy Thursday on Thursday night, and then we've got the prayer experience, the Easter egg hunt, and three services on Easter. You be a part of something like that because it's a, it's a movement. It's a revolution. It's not just a religion. 
And if you need some information as to how you can answer the question, what does the Lord need from me? See somebody in a green shirt. They'll show you how that works. God, thank you for today. Thank you for your scripture that is so clear. Thank you for these stories that are so real. Just goofy people like us trying to figure it out. And you stopping to look them in the eye and to to probe inside their heads and hearts to see what it is that they're really seeking. And and the ones that are really seeking after you, God, I just want, I want to be part of your movement. I want to be part of something that's bigger than me. I want to know that this life is not all there is. And, And when you find those people who are seeking you, you just, you're patient with them and you forgive them and you bless them and you, you, you heal and you hear their hurts. God, help us to be those people. Help us to be those people. This is my prayer in Jesus' name.